you and I ask ourselves questions every day. We ask ourselves questions. We kind of talk to ourselves a lot. Maybe not audibly, but we all ask ourselves questions on a daily basis. When we're driving, while we're listening to people, while we're lying in bed, maybe when you're praying, you might ask yourself a question. Questions like, should I take the freeway today or not? Should I order the beef or chicken? Is it wrong to eat Taco Bell twice in the same day? Do I drink too much coffee? Should I buy this? Do I really need it? Should I tell them? Should I tell them the truth? Should I tell them what happened? Should I give this stranger some cash from my pocket? How much should we give to our church this week? Should I get this spot checked out? When my child screams at me in frustration, do I help them calm down and then have a conversation with them? Or is something more immediate needed in this situation? What will this person do if I confront them about this issue, and does that even matter? When my wife tells me that she could stand to lose 10 pounds, do I agree with her or just be quiet? Maybe I could just tell her she, needs to, she doesn't need to lose any weight. She just needs to tone up. Yeah, that'd be better. And, and so we ask ourselves questions every day. No matter where you are at in life, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult or a teenager, we're constantly asking ourselves questions and making choices. But there are also questions we ask ourselves that come from somewhere deeper. Questions like, does God hear me when I pray? Or why is my experience with God not like his or hers? Why can't I seem to get past this one temptation? Does God really have my back? Is God really for me? Am I really a disciple of Jesus and will I see him face to face one day and will he open his arms to me? Will I pass the test? Is this the right church for me? Do these people really care about me? What if they let me down? Am I in the right place at the right time? Do you ever wonder about those kinds of things or ask those kinds of questions? If you do, you're not alone. You need to know that. Followers of God have been asking those types of, those types of questions for, for centuries, since the beginning, really, which is one of the reasons that we have the letter of 1 John. And today I want to offer you one simple truth, which is this. Love is the answer. Love is the answer. And we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 this morning. And I'm going to invite you to turn there right now or turn your Bible on and get to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going, to, we're going to talk about what it means that love is the answer. But if love is the answer, then of course we have to know what the question is. And so as we go through the text, I think what we're going to see is that love is the answer, but there are also some important questions that are being assumed as John writes this letter. And we'll talk about what those questions are. And, and our goal this morning is that when you leave here today, that you'll understand what the right questions are and what the answer is, and that you'll be changed. I mean, that's why we're here, isn't it? We're here to change. We're not, we don't come here every week just to go through the motions or to see familiar faces and feel comfortable or just to be encouraged or to ease our consciences or something like that or to check off a box. We're here because we want 
to change. We want to experience God's life in our life. And that's, that's my prayer for you today. So let's turn to God this morning. Let's turn to God's word. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. You can follow along with me. Here's what we read. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We're going to pause there. And the first question that I'd like to pose to you that comes, I think, from the text is this question. Who do I belong to? Who do I belong to? Whose child am I? Whose child am I? Now, one thing I love about God is that he doesn't tell us to do something without first telling us what we are. And I think that's because God knows that nobody could ever do the things that God tells them to do. Nobody could possibly live the way God wants them to live unless they were a certain kind of person. Now, if you have kids, you probably know that kids get really frustrated when you just ask them to do things and don't give them a reason to, especially as they get older and as they approach adolescence. Kids get, it's like they need a reason to do things more and more and more. They need to know why they should listen to you and why they should follow your advice or obey your commands. They're not just going to do it. It's like they need you to give them a good reason to, right? And that's just kind of how we're wired. Human beings are not merely animals controlled by instinct. We are made in the image of God. That is the first thing that God tells us about who we are, what we are. We are human beings. We're created in the image of God. God tells us that before he ever tells us to love him or obey him or to be like him. He just says, you are created in my image. You are created to be like me, to reflect my character in the world. That comes first. And God invites us to live a radically different life because of what we are and what we have. It's because of who we are. And in 1 John 3, we're told first that we are children of God, and then we are told to love. We're children of God, which means we're born to love. That's what we're made for. We are made to love others. There's no way we can ever lead a life that overflows with this kind of supernatural love unless we were children of God. It would be impossible. But we're told time and time again in the New Testament, we are children of God. It's who we are. So the first thing that uh, John establishes in verse 10, which is the text we just read, is that you are either a child of God or a child of the devil. 
You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. That's what he says. There's no other family you could belong to. There's no third option. You might, you might say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm also not a Satanist. I don't worship the devil. I'm not some evil, twisted, wicked, perverted person. But spiritually speaking, there are only two daddies. There's only two. There's God and there's the devil. Those are the only two sources you could have possibly been born from. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. And how can you know whose child you are? How can you know who your daddy is? How can you know who you belong to? Love is the answer. Do you love the family of God? And then John tells us something else about children of God in verse 14. In verse 14 of 1 John 3, we read, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So children of God are people who have passed out of death into life. And the Apostle Paul describes this transition in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read about what this, how this happens. This is how that that. This is how we passed out of death into life. He writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's the devil. That's who we used to follow. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All right, so, so let's just pause for a minute and observe that we, we haven't always been children of God. There was a time where we were children of wrath. We were children of the devil. We were like Cain. That's the contrast John gives us in 1 John 3. We were at one time like Cain, and what do we know about Cain besides the fact that Cain is, of course, notorious for being the world's first ever murderer. That's what he's best known for. Don't you wish you could, so, that someone would produce a documentary called Making a Murderer that was about Cain? You know, how did that happen? How did that happen? It never entered anyone's mind before to kill their brother. How did that happen? I mean, God treated Cain like a son. But Cain ignored God. He wanted praise and attention for himself. And when his brother got the, who did nothing wrong to Cain, when his brother got all the attention and the praise from God that Cain wanted, he became resentful and angry. God came to him and pleaded with him and warned him and encouraged him. And Cain rejected God's word. And and ultimately, Cain wrestled with this question. Should I listen to God? Or should I do what I want to do? Should I live my own way? Should I please God or should I please myself? I mean, that's the question. That's the question everybody wrestles with today. And at the root of all of this is self. That's the thing that's true of every child of the devil. They're self-centered. 
They're driven to please themselves. And we were all like that. We were all completely self-centered, self-driven, self-justifying people. And God had to do something about that. Before we ever heard the gospel, we were dead. We were dead to God. We were outside of the life of God. We were abiding in death, is what John says here. We were not interested in what God wanted. We were interested in eating and drinking and pleasure and possessions and happiness and success and acceptance and power and otherworldly things. We were only living in the worldly realm. We didn't even know that there was a heavenly kingdom available to us. We didn't know that we could have access to God in a relationship. We didn't know that we could be transformed through fellowship with God and with his son Jesus. We, we were shut off. We were cut off from all of that. Until God did something. And what did God do? We read, here's what Paul says, picking up in Ephesians 2 verse 4. This is amazing. But God, but God, think about that. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's, our, that's access. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God did that. God did all of that. God looked at our helpless condition. He sent his spirit to wake us up to him. Okay, so here's what that means. It means that being a child of God is not something you can choose to be. It's not something you can try to be. It's not deciding to live a better life. Being a child of God is something you are only because God chose to breathe his life into you. That's what makes someone a child of God. It's something that happens to you, like a rebirth. It's a change in nature. And how did that happen? How did that happen? Love. Love is the answer because of the great love with which he loved us. And John claims that this act of God is how we know love. This is how we know love. It's because of this. Listen to what John says. 1 John 3, let's pick up in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In deed and truth. So here's the second question. If the first question is, who do I belong to? The second question is, what should I do when I see someone in need? What should I do when I see a brother or sister in need? Now, you know that all over the Bible, we're told to love all kinds of people. We're told to love our neighbors. We're told to love our enemies. We're told to love people who are far from God. But here in this passage, we're told specifically to love those people 
who God has raised from death to life. Those people who are children of God, that's who we're supposed to love. That's how we know whose child we are. Do we love God's children? So if the question is, what should I do when I see a brother in need? The answer is love. Love is the answer. You can't be a child of God and not practice love towards the other children of God, is what I think he's saying. And, and what kind of love are we talking about? Are we talking about a feeling? It doesn't seem that way. This love is pictured in a very practical way. It's not even about you saying, I would die for you. I would die for you. I mean, that's what Jesus did for us. And John says we should be willing to die for our brothers and sisters. I mean, think about that. How many people can you look in the eye and say to you sincerely, I would die for you. I would die for you. It's probably not that many, is it? But, but listen, this, this gets even more practical than that. If you see someone in need, if you see someone in need, love them. Okay? I may never need you to die for me. I may never need you to die for me. But I may need a place to stay someday until I get back on my feet. I may need some gas money someday. I may need a new job someday. I may need help with my house or my car. I may need help to pay my energy bill or for one of my kids who's in the hospital. I may need help with my marriage. I may need help as a parent. And if I'm a follower of Jesus and and I lose my income or I lose my health or I lose my job or I lose my marriage or I lose a child... Where can I go? Where can I turn? To you. I mean, you are my church. You're my family. You are the safest place for me. Is that how you think of the church? Is the church just a place to you, somewhere you go on the occasional Sunday to see some familiar faces and maybe be encouraged? Or is the church where you experience God's amazing love? Where you can, is the church a place where you can gather with God's people and be changed by God's love and feel it and be able to measure it and say, I know God loves me because of these people? The church is where love happens. And please notice, this is important, I think, to note. We're not called to like each other, okay? We're commanded to love each other. Those are two different things. In other words, love is not a greater degree of like. They're two different things. Think about that for a minute. If you like someone, it it just happens naturally. It's instinctual, liking people. There's something about them you like. You might not even be able to quantify it. Maybe it's the way they look or the way they talk or the way they dress or the, you know, it's the way you feel when you're around them. But there's something about those people that you like. And there's also, there's there's also something about other people that you don't like. And you might not be able to quantify that either. But you know that I like him. And for some reason, I don't like him. Liking people is a matter of instinct, mostly. But loving people is different. It's different than that. 
Loving people is an intentional action, okay? Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this subject. He says, love overcomes obstacles and excuses. It sees beyond what it does not like and minimizes it in order to see the person who is at the back of it. To love those we do not like means that we treat them as if we did like them. To choose to act kindly toward them even though we do not like them. So I want to give you permission today to not like other Christians. You have, you have permission to do that, okay? I, I, I don't like all of you, okay? I'm just going to say that, okay? No offense. It's not that I'm thinking about anyone in particular, okay? It's just the truth. It's just what it means to be human. Some of you don't like me all that much. Just admit it. You know, if I, if I could go to each one of you or someone else, preferably, and say, hey, what's one thing you would change about Dave Bloom? You would all have something to say. But you're all here. You know, and the people who are close to me, they would have a lot to say. There's a whole lot of things they would like to change about me. You know, they would need a lot more space. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter if I like you. And it doesn't matter if you like me. And the reason is because we are born of the same love. We come from the same Father, you and I, if you're a child of God. That's what matters. We serve the same Master. We love the same Lord. We've experienced the same grace. We're anointed by the same Spirit. Remember, remember that from a couple weeks ago? I mean, we have everything we need to love each other the way we're called to. To be a family. That's what we're made to be. We're made to love each other. We can love this way because of who we are, children of God. And that's what makes us different than worldly people. That's what makes us different from worldly people. People in the world don't do that. They just don't. When someone in the world doesn't like someone, they treat them accordingly. They avoid them. They talk about them behind their back. They daydream about that person failing. They might go out of their way to try to get that person to fail. They don't go out of their way to help them or bless them or love them. And that is what makes the gospel so radical. That's why being a child of God is such an awesome privilege because it gives us the power and the nature to love like nobody else can so that when someone comes into our life and invades our space and hurts us or takes something from us or hurts someone we love, we can actually love that person. We can give them what they don't deserve. We can respond in a way that nobody else can. Because we were once enemies of God and hostile to God, and that's exactly what he did to us. He gave everything to us. He laid down his life for us, and he loved us. Love is the answer. And now we'll turn to the final question, beginning in verse 19. 1 John three nineteen. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. 
Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit next week. But the last question that is in in this last passage that we just read is this. How can I live confidently before God? How can I be reassured of my standing with God? How can I have assurance? Has your heart ever condemned you? Have you ever had doubts about whether or not you were a child of God? Have you ever wondered if your faith was in vain? Have you ever wondered if God's presence was really with you? Have you ever wondered if the Holy Spirit was living in you? Have you ever wondered if God is really for you, if he has your back, if he, if he loves you? Have you ever wondered those things? I mean, that's normal. That's a normal part of the growing process. The question is, what do we do when that happens? How can we know that God is for us? How can we know that his spirit is in us? And the answer is love. By whether or not we love God's family. And here's why this is so important. When you spend your life loving people, when you spend your life giving yourself away to people and and meeting their felt needs in love, You're not just helping them, you're helping you. You're helping yourself because when you find yourself constantly giving yourself away to people, you know, your time, your money, your home, your cars, and the things that most people, you know, don't want to let go of, the things that are important to normal people, when you sort of empty yourself out to serve other people, you don't end up empty, you end up filled You end up full of God's presence, full of confidence and assurance that God is with you, that God is for you, that he is using you, and that you're a new person, you're a new creature created in the image of his son Jesus who did the same things. I mean, what is better than that? What is better than having confidence before God? Is anything better than that? Is anything better than to, be, than, to, than to know that God is for me? That God loves me, that I am his child, that he will never leave me or forsake me? Is anything better than that? That's where our joy comes from, doesn't it? Isn't that where our joy comes from and our peace and all the things that we cherish as children of God? And and one day, let me tell you, if if that's not something that's precious to you now, one day, nothing will be more important to you than confidence before God. Do you know why? Because we were just told back in chapter 2 that Jesus is coming back. And there's a way to stand on the day of judgment, to see Jesus riding on the clouds, and to have confidence at his coming. Not to shrink back in fear, not to run and hide, not to wonder what the outcome's going to be, but to say, yes, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready. That day is coming, whether you're ready or not. And when that day comes, nothing will be more important to you than having confidence before God. And the way to have that confidence is love. 
the way that we love each other. So what should we do when our hearts condemn us? Can our hearts be wrong? Yes, our hearts can be wrong. Our hearts have sin. Our hearts are sometimes wicked and deceitful and can lead us astray. But God is greater than our hearts. And he knows who belong to him. That's what we're told. So my challenge to you is look at your life. When you think about your life, can you see things about yourself that are impossible to explain except for the presence of God? Can you see the presence of God in your life? Look around you right now. Look around you. You see all these people here? You see all these people? I mean, this is about them. Do you love them? Do you love each other? If you can look around at these people and say, yes, I love them, I love them. I, I don't like all of them necessarily, but I want to love them. We're told that you're a child of God. You're a child of God. And this isn't some subjective exercise. This is about the promises of God. This is about the promises of God. This is about the love of God poured out on us through the man Jesus who bled and died in our place. It's about God's love working in us and through us to meet people's felt needs. And when you see God working through you to meet people's needs, you grow, you win, you get confidence. And we need that. Christians throughout the centuries have needed that. The first century Christians John was writing to needed that. They were tempted. They were in trouble. They were tempted to believe lies. They were tempted to go back to their former life. They were tempted to believe that they weren't really children of God and that they didn't belong to God. And that's why we need this truth. And and I want to close this morning with a picture. I want to leave you with a picture today. And it comes from Luke chapter 7. I, I kept thinking about this story this past week. As I was thinking about how, how can we get our, our minds around what this kind of love looks like and how it's expressed in day-to-day life. And in Luke chapter 7, there's a, a pretty familiar story, but it's a story about a woman. I mean, the story's really about Jesus, but, you know, there's other people there. And what happens is Jesus is invited to the home of a religious leader. And he's a well-known religious leader, and he invites Jesus into his home for a meal. And Jesus goes, and this woman, who's a woman from the area, everyone in the town pretty much knows who she is and what she's about, and we're told that she's a sinner. And I don't need to tell you what exactly that means. You could probably figure it out, but she had a reputation. She lived a sinful lifestyle. She, she was a certain kind of sinner. Most people thought she'd probably be one of the worst kinds of sinners. And she did something that day that has people talking all over the world for a couple thousand years later now. And what she did was actually very undignified. She heard that Jesus was having a meal in this religious leader's home, and she walked right in there. She had no place in that home. She had no right to be there. She didn't belong there with those other religious leaders, those other clean people, and, you know, including Jesus himself, God himself in a body. Okay? But she went in, into this home around all these other people. And she went behind Jesus. She stood behind Jesus with an alabaster, a jar of ointment. And she began to pour it on Jesus. And she began to weep. And she's crying. She's lost control of her emotions. She's crying over Jesus. She's on her knees now. And her tears are, are covering Jesus' feet. And we find out that Jesus' feet were dirty. The This religious leader had invited Jesus into his home as a guest and didn't even have the courtesy to wipe 
to let Jesus offer him a bowl of water to wash his feet, which is just common courtesy back in that day. And this woman notices that Jesus has dirty feet, and she does something about it. She takes her hair, and she wipes Jesus' feet clean. And all the dirt that's on Jesus' feet is absorbed into her hair. And she starts kissing his feet and pouring the ointment on his feet. And I'm sure everyone, whatever they were doing, they have stopped. And everyone's attention is focused on this woman. And Jesus turns to her and he starts talking to the Pharisee. And he says, do you see this? This is what I'm about. This is love. That's what he says. He said, said, you know why this woman's doing this? Because she's been forgiven much. And whoever's been forgiven much, loves much. This woman sees Jesus, and she can't help herself. She loves Jesus so much, she knows who who he is. He hasn't even died on the cross yet. But she knows what Jesus is about. He's a man who is willing to pour himself out on sinners. Unworthy people, unclean people, wherever he went. He healed their diseases. He cast out their their evil spirits. He changed their lives. He told them that they could have access to God. And he told them how. And he told them what God was really like. And he was changing people's minds all over his world about who God really is. And what he really thinks about sinners. And this woman loved him. And that's how she expressed it. And and here's what I'd like to challenge you with this morning. We sometimes in in our modern, you know, culture here in America and other places too, we sometimes tend to sensationalize love. And we tend to, we tend to be drawn to the extreme, you know? There's all kinds of television shows out there that show like these extreme acts of sacrifice and love. And, you know, some CEO somewhere wrote a check to some homeless person for $200,000 and it's changed their life. And that's, you know, that's pretty much it. We don't hear from them again. And, oh, that's amazing. That's loving, right? Well, maybe it is. And that's pretty, that's pretty awesome, sacrifice. And sometimes we sensation, but sometimes we sensationalize love. And we think love is all about these incredible miracles even. Like, you know, people being healed of their diseases and things like that. But let me tell you, not everyone is able to do that. Not everyone can cut a check for $200,000. Not... God hasn't gifted everybody to heal people. But do you know what every child of God can do? Everybody. If you're a child of God, you know what you're called to do that can change the world? When you see someone in need, especially a brother or sister in Christ, you meet that need. You humble yourself and you meet that need. No matter how undignified it is, no matter if anyone's there to see it or not, no matter if there's someone there, you know, videoing it on their phone or something else or not, no one might ever know that you did it. But that doesn't matter. Because this is not about, this is not about you. It's about what God has done. It's about God's love invading us, invading our territory to transform people's life through very, mundane, everyday acts of service. I mean, that's what living the Christian life is about. It's about loving each other in very concrete, 
humble ways. That's what's going to change us. That's what grows the kingdom of God today. Do you love God's people? Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this word that we've considered today. And we thank you, Lord, that you call us your children. There is no greater thing, I don't think, than to know God, that we belong to you, that you have done everything necessary to adopt us into your family, and that our status as your children is binding through the blood of Jesus Christ and through his resurrection, which we're about to remember as we take communion. We thank you, God, for the, for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which changes everything about us. And we ask that today and this week, as we go from here, that you would help us to stop thinking about what we need and to start thinking about what others need. To start listening and watching and taking care to notice what people need. And then that we would put ourselves in your way so that you can use us to love others and to meet their needs. That's what we're called to do. And you've given us the power to do it. We thank you that we're your children and for being our Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.